Hello, this is Mark Peacock, and welcome to the Travel Commons Podcast. This is Travel Commons Podcast number 188, recorded Thursday, August 18th, 2022. This is the podcast giving the voice of the traveler. It's more about the journey than the destination. One topic on this edition of the Travel Commons Podcast, my top 13 tips for avoiding travel chaos. So back after a June-July hiatus to relocate the Travel Commons studios, as well as the rest of our worldly belongings, from Chicago to Nashville, Tennessee. So that's really been the most recent travel I've done, the drive down I-65, and, and, and then I've been digging into the different neighborhoods and the brewery tap rooms here in Nashville or Nash Vegas if you spend too much time downtown on Broadway. You know you have not been on the road enough when Lyft pushes you a coupon just for opening their app, and then Uber sends you emails like, you haven't taken a ride with us in a while, so we're checking in to ask for some feedback. Let us know why we haven't seen you in a while. Now, the right response to that question was, I I haven't had a reason to use you, but I was really tempted to hit prices are too high or ETAs are too long. You know, I don't know. My next Uber ride will probably be on one of those Lime e-scooters that I'm seeing around town here. Of course, if there was a time to drop off the road, this summer was it, with flight cancellations rising. The the U.S. July 4th weekend was a train wreck, with 500 flights canceled on that Friday, and then 600 the next day on Saturday, and accent that all with 4,000 delays, and then the record high gas prices and still screwed up rental car fleets make for, I don't know, just the chef's kiss on top of it all, turning the fly versus drive trade-off into, I don't know, some witch's brew of partial differential equations. At some point, you just throw the suitcase back in the closet and treat your Weber to a load of premium lump charcoal. You know, as if the frequent traveler rule of avoid holiday weekend travel needed another proof point. So while I wasn't in that maelstrom, though I'm not sure unpacking a hundred or so moving boxes was all that much better, I have been an interested or maybe even an involved observer to all this travel chaos with friends and families calling with friends and family calling me, messaging me, hey Mark, I, I I've got a question for a travel guru and thought of you first. And you know, I was just trying to help him navigate as best that I could. And after I dished out the same advice more than a couple of times, indeed often sort of cutting and pasting the same suggestion from one text stream to another, I decided that maybe this would be a good time to pull it all together in a single place. I don't know, maybe even a podcast with, better yet, written show notes for easy reference. So stay tuned. That's coming up in a couple of minutes. In June, while I was wrapping myself up in bubble wrap and packing tape, the U.S., Canada, and most European and Latin American countries dropped their inbound COVID testing requirements. I mean, it makes sense if you really think about it. These testing requirements were put in place to keep COVID at bay. And let's face it, I mean, we all know they failed miserably. At the beginning of last December, the U.S. tightened its inbound testing requirement to try to keep out the then new Omicron variant. But by the end of the month, it was just rampant. It was shot through everywhere in the U.S. And yet the U.S. kept that 24-hour test 
testing requirement for another seven months, long after the rationale for it had been way overrun by real life. But give credit where credit is due, they finally did drop it. One less thing to cause backups at airports and border crossings, I guess. It'll be interesting to see if the testing requirements start cropping up again if we get another autumn surge of COVID. The Spirit Frontier JetBlue Dance Macabre finally seems to have ended with JetBlue's escalating share price offers trumping Frontier's more obvious business case of merging two ultra-low cost and ultra-low service U.S. carriers. JetBlue's desperation, it just didn't make sense to me. So, yes, maybe they expand their Florida footprint, which is always important for an East Coast airline. But at what integration costs? I've always enjoyed flying JetBlue. It felt like they tried to add, I don't know, just a touch more to their service to differentiate themselves from, say, United or American. So now merge that with Spirit, which seems, I don't know, has always seemed like a kindler, gentler Ryanair, or I don't know, maybe Ryanair, but without the chip on its shoulder. I mean, where's the sense in that? Then somebody suggested to me that I, I had completely missed the plot. It's not about Florida. It's not about low cost. It's about the pilot shortage. JetBlue and Spirit both fly Airbus. JetBlue's other growth option would be Alaska Airlines, which is a big Boeing shop. It's, I guess it's much easier to cross-train and leverage pilots across, say, an all-Airbus fleet than a mixed Airbus-Boeing fleet. I mean, it's the same reason that Southwest and Ryanair are so rabidly focused on the Boeing 737 and Spirit and Frontier on the Airbus A320. Okay, I got it. That makes sense in this day and age of labor shortages. But I have to tell you, I'll be a bit sad if this whole mess ends up spiritizing JetBlue. We are not a WeWork, said the head of Delta's Sky Club lounge system as they put in new limits on lounge access. You can't get in earlier than three hours before your departure time, so no more checking out of the hotel to post up in the Sky Lounge for free food, drinks, and Wi-Fi until your afternoon flight. I got to tell you that this wouldn't be a big thing for me if I was a regular Delta flyer. I'm always trying to figure out how to spend the least amount of time in an airport. Maybe a couple of times I'd set up camp in the Admiral's Club for a morning of calls before, say, a noon flight out. But I'd much prefer working my hotel status to get a later room checkout and then take my calls there by myself, instead of hoping to find a club workstation that wasn't next to some sales guy sort of loudly recapping some deal that he'd just closed. Now, to me, though, the more interesting piece of the story is the other limit they wanted to put in but couldn't, which was no lounge access after your flight had landed. Now, that one that one would have left a mark. I mean, a lot of times I'd wedge my flight into a two to three hour window between phone calls. And for me, it was always those after flight calls where the lounge was critical. So I'm not overly surprised that Delta had to quickly back off of that attempt. But they had to do something because as the main floors of the terminals have become more of a zoo and as the lounges have added more free stuff, better food, free drinks... 
they've become way more jammed. I mean, it's tough to find a place to sit before the morning in evening flight banks, let alone find a place to take a call. Amex is upping their price starting this coming February to charge 50 bucks to get your guest into a Centurion lounge with you. Looks like Delta is pivoting the other way, trying rationing instead. It'll be interesting to see which way American and United go. There's been a good bit of commentary over the past few years about the devaluation of frequent flyer miles, that they're worth less than they used to be, that the old benchmark of two cents per mile no longer holds because airlines are pushing up the number of points needed for a flight, in large part because of the increased supply of points sloshing around the system from when airlines sold huge tranches of points to credit card companies for needed cash. Now, the comparison to the real economy, how expansion of monetary supply leads to inflation, that's left as an exercise to the listener. But now I noticed something as I was working on flights for an autumn trip back to Europe, a week in Croatia at the end of September and then a couple of weeks back in Italy. It seems that the cost increases in frequent flyer miles haven't kept up with the real dollar cost increases for flights. And that resulting gap had me busting way through the two cents per mile benchmark on every flight that I booked. Now, maybe if I was more ambitious, I'd find an arbitrage opportunity somewhere in there. But for now, I'm just happy to get some decent deals on my United miles. Now, if the euro to dollar parity exchange rate holds, it'll be a real bargain trip. And hey, if you've got any travel stories, questions, comments, tips, rants, the voice of the traveler, send them along to comments, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S at travelcommons.com. You can always send a Twitter message to M. Peacock, post your thoughts on the Travel Commons Facebook page or Instagram account at Travel Commons, or you can always post your comments on the website at travelcommons.com. The topic on today's Travel Commons podcast is my top 13 tips for avoiding travel chaos. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I've gotten pinged a bunch of times over the past couple of months by friends and family who, stuck in the middle of some travel challenge, not an uncommon event this summer, pinged me on Twitter, Facebook Messenger, iMessage, asking, what do I do? So I thought this would die down come Labor Day with, you know, all the kids heading back to school, which ends the official summer travel season. But over the past couple of weeks, I've been seeing a steady stream of articles headlined, Travel Woes Won't End This Summer, saying an extended collision of travel shortages and revenge travel traffic will keep things gummed up until at least October, after which we'll just slam right into the Thanksgiving and Christmas travel rush. So just lovely. So in the spirit of those, I'm a flight attendant and here's what you should do articles that have popped up this summer. Here's my, I'm a 37-year road warrior and these are my tips for handling travel chaos list. So actually, you'll find that most of this list are things you do before the day of travel. Planning, preparation, you know, that colonial era road warrior Ben Franklin once said, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Now, I'm not sure if he wrote that about his trips to England or France, but hey, it still applies to travel. What you do the month or two before travel day is way more important than what you do that morning. So let's get into it. First, 
like figure out if you really need to fly. My normal fly versus drive tipping point is about 350 miles. Anything less, I'll drive it. But with all this travel chaos, it might change your calculus. I mean, think about it. If you fly, you figure the airport logistics are going to add at least three hours to your in-flight time. Maybe the stories of baggage check and security lines have got you thinking of arriving two hours before your flight. And then when you arrive, the crowds could mean, I don't know, it's another hour before you deplane, collect your luggage if they haven't lost it, find your rental car, wait for an Uber. And that's if there's no flight delay. So maybe the sum of all these time buckets starts to bump up your fly versus drive break-even point. I don't know, maybe something closer to 400, maybe even 500 miles. Now, if you are flying, sign up for TSA PreCheck. It's 85 bucks for five years of hassle reduction. Or better yet, if your revenge travel is international, sign up for global entry for 15 bucks more and you get PreCheck plus no line at U.S. passport control. And if you check, it may be free. A lot of travel credit cards will credit you the 100 bucks as one of their benefits. Whether you get it for free or not, just do it. The difference between a 5-minute and 45-minute security line at the start of your trip is just huge. Third, fly nonstop. I mean, it's obvious because it's the cardinal rule of air travel. High passenger load factors combined with summer thunderstorms almost guarantees late arrivals and misconnections. And an intermediate stop, a connection, just adds one more point of failure, one more place where your luggage could fall off the trolley, one more opportunity for the airlines to screw up. Pay the extra 100 bucks for a nonstop flight. Now, if you can't fly nonstop, skip the tight connections. Step away from anything that's less than an hour. Yes, we usually want to get to our destination in the shortest possible time, but accepting a connection time of an hour or less, I mean, think about it. A 15-minute delay on your flight into a big hub like Chicago or Denver or Detroit, which, you know, for the summer is as good as on time for most airlines. I mean, 15-minute delay, and you're suddenly sprinting across terminals and concourses just to beat the closing door on your next flight. So just, just don't do it. But no matter nonstop or connection, catch the earliest flight you can. Delays stack up as the day wears on. As your airplane goes from airport to airport, the probability of it getting stuck increases. Overnight, Airlines have a chance to recover. Late planes finally get to their destinations, and operation groups can reassign planes. So while the last flight-out can be a crapshoot, I rarely hit a delay on the first flight-out. So now, after you've done a good job of planning, here's some stuff for the night before you leave. First and foremost, pack so you can carry on your luggage. Longtime Travel Commons listener Steve Frick always says there's only two kinds of luggage, carry-on and lost. It's the summer, so no sweaters, no coats. You're packing your thinnest clothes. I mean, some years back, I got everything I needed for a 10-day trip in March that was between Iceland and southern Spain. I got it all into my 22-inch carry-on. So unless you're doing multiple formals, everyone in your travel party should be able to fit into a carry-on size bag. You can save 25 bucks a bag and increase the probability of having clean clothes at your destination. 
Now, if you are doing multiple formals or for some other reason you need to check bags, spread everyone's clothes across all the bags. It's rare for an airline to lose all of your checked bags. So this way, no one is having to show up at the first formal in an outfit that they had to buy from the nearest Walmart. Next tip, while you're packing, charge up your battery packs. You know, we can't travel anymore without a working mobile phone. It holds our boarding passes, proof of COVID vaccination, gives us gate change and flight delay notifications, and routes us around traffic jams. A dead phone while flights are being canceled is more than just an inconvenience. Having that second or third charge immediately available is critical when you're trying to swerve a long delay. And then, after packing, download or update your carrier's app on your smartphone, and then also download an independent flight tracking app. Carriers have been pushing more and more functionality into their apps, boarding passes, one-day lounge passes, real-time gate and flight delay notifications, canceled flight rebookings. So if you haven't already, download it and then log into it. Make sure you've got it all set up so you're not having to fumble at the airport the next morning. But in addition to the Carrier's app, I also run a couple of independent flight tracking apps as backups. Uh, I don't know, maybe just to get a second opinion on delays. The free FlightAware app has been my go-to for years. Now, a few months back in episode 186, I talked about another flight tracker app, Flighty, that I tried out on our April trip to Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, Flighty Pro, that pro paid version, is really nice if you're willing to pay 50 bucks a year, but I have to tell you, it, it wasn't enough to get me to ditch the free FlightAware app. And look, we're now at travel day. You're all ready. Your flight hasn't been canceled or delayed yet. So here are some day of tips if things start to get a little bit bumpy. First and foremost, keep moving forward. If you hit a delay, always keep moving forward in the direction of your destination. The closer you are, the more options you have. Now, last month, my daughter Claire was flying from Denver to Manchester, New Hampshire, which is a tough itinerary, especially now the carriers are pulling back from smaller airports. Now, she found a route on American, which was kind of surprising given that Denver is a huge United hub. But anyhow, the flight on American went Denver to Charlotte to Manchester, though it left much later than the rest of her team. So she had some hours to kill at DIA. And then pretty soon she started to get alerts from the American app. Summer storms were forecasted in Charlotte, so if her plans were flexible... Now, her plans weren't completely flexible. She still needed to get to New Hampshire that night, so she pinged me. They're offering me a standby seat on an earlier flight to Charlotte. Should I take it? Absolutely, I said. It gets you out of the Rockies and onto the East Coast. Still not drivable, but if your Manchester flight gets canceled, maybe you can get closer, like to Boston or Portland, Maine, and then drive from there. This is another good reason to do carry-ons. It's tough to call a quick audible like this when somebody else has your bag. Which then kind of leads me, know your geography. Claire and I joke about this. All the time she spent learning new and unique ways to do arithmetic, I don't know, something to do with columns and diagonals. I could never figure it out. 
so she'd have a better feel for numbers. It crowded out those grade school geography and map lessons us boomers took all those years ago. That map knowledge came in handy when I was helping her think about what New England airports would be good alternatives to Manchester to give her flexibility if her flight got canceled. And, you know, in New York, the LaGuardia to Newark pivot is pretty easy, as is the San Francisco to Oakland or San Francisco to San Jose redirect. But other ones aren't so obvious. I mean, everybody knows that Chicago has two airports, O'Hare and Midway. But what about Milwaukee's Mitchell Field, 80 miles north of O'Hare? And if Philadelphia's in trouble, how many people think about Harrisburg or Allentown? I think about alternatives in two rings. Within 60 miles, so say um, John Wayne, Orange County, and Long Beach for LAX, And then I think about the next ring, which is, I don't know, maybe 100, 120 miles, which now for LAX picks up Palm Springs and San Diego. And now if something does go sideways on your trip, don't wait. Hit every contact channel the airline has and do it immediately. Dial the customer service number while standing in line for the agent. Hit the airline's Twitter account too. It can be a good side channel into customer service. You never know which one's going to open up first. Indeed, I often find I'll get what I need from adding and DMing the airline on Twitter before the hold music stops playing on the 800 number. Bonus pro tip, have your confirmation number easily available. It makes it that much easier and faster for the agent to find your reservation and help you out. And one last thing, bring cash. Way back in episode 136, I talked about what seems to be a generational split between residual boomers like me and older millennials on the need to carry cash. Now, no matter what side you sit on that split, it's a fact that cash can get you out of a packed airport bar quicker than a card if you need to bolt for your flight. Maybe you got a delay that pulled up, your gate got moved to the next terminal, or maybe you just misread the boarding time. Being able to lay down, I don't know, say a 20 and three ones on the bar with your check is a whole lot quicker than waiting for the waitress to show back up, take your card, walk back to run it through the machine, and then bring it back to you to sign. So there you go. 13 things. All the things I've been texting folks this summer and uh, probably a couple more. I hope it helps you too. And if you've got a tip, a tactic that I've missed, please send it along. We'll add it to the list and hey, talk about it on the next episode. Okay, that's it. That's the end of Travel Commons podcast number 188. I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you decide to stay subscribed. Sorry for the June-July gap. Honestly, it took me a lot longer than I thought to pack and unpack all our worldly belongings. You can find us and listen to the current episodes on all the main podcast sites, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. You can also ask Alexa, Siri, or Google to play Travel Commons on your smart speakers. You can always go to travelcommons.com to check out the show notes page for a transcript of this episode uh, and any of the links that I mentioned, or you can click on the uh, link in the episode's description in your podcast app. That'll take you straight to the show notes page. And if you've got a couple of minutes, how about leaving us a review on one of the sites, or better yet, tell somebody about Travel Commons. If you're not subscribed, hit the website at travelcommons.com. There's a drop-down subscribe menu at the top of each page, a set of subscribe links at the bottom of 
big red subscribe button right in the middle of the homepage. And across the bottom uh, of each page on the website, you'll find links to the Travel Commons socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you've got a story, thought, comment, gripe, the voice of the traveler, send them along, text or audio file to comments, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S at travelcommons.com and Peacock on Twitter. Write them on the Travel Commons pages on Facebook or Instagram or post them on the website at travelcommons.com. Thanks to everyone who's taken the time to send in emails, tweets, post comments on the website. I really appreciate it. And hey, look, um, I haven't pod faded. I'm sort of back. So until we talk again next month, travel safe. Thanks for staying stopping by the Travel Commons. Bye now.